This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You are now listening to British Birds, the True Crime Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this week I have a very special guest on the show. He is a journalist and an author. Please welcome to the show Robin Girossi. Hello. Hi Robin, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Now before we get started, I always like to ask my guests a bit of an icebreaker question, something that they're Perhaps not expecting. It might be something completely out of the blue. The good thing is I've not actually thought of this question yet, so it makes it even more intense because (laughs) now on the spot I have to think of this question. My question is going to be this. If you could go back in time and meet anyone, who would it be and why? You can go back as far as you want. Let's say there's no language barrier. So if you went back to the 11th century, you could speak fluently to each other. So we're not saying you'd have to have a translator. You could just speak whatever language you want. It could be someone abroad. It could be someone uh, on the British Isles. Who do you think you'd like to meet and why? God, that's a, that's a, a quite a thought-provoking one. <laughs> uh, I think I'd like to go back and meet um, maybe a great artist of some kind or musician like Bach or Mozart mm. or somebody uh, from that period. I just think it'd be interesting to see the sights and the sounds and the see what the city like Vienna was like at that time. Uh, yeah, I think that would be an amazing experience, but also to see what these people are like, because of course there's no film, there's no, yeah, there's no recording of them. So it would be interesting. So that, that would be mine, I guess. What question would you ask a young Mozart? I think I'd probably just sit there and hopefully they'd, they'd be playing, um, <laughs> some <laughs> composition i could just see them live concert be the thrill yeah yeah no, that's good i don't have an answer for myself because i've only just thought of the question but we'll stick with yours mozart back classical composer from a classical era yeah brilliant answer brilliant answer right so with yourself as i mentioned there you're um a journalist and author based in london is that right yes where did you grow up I grew up where I'm living now, more or less. Um, I mean, I was actually born in New York, but I've lived in, in Highbury in London uh, most of my life. Went to school here. so And I've been working, obviously, in the centre of London, mainly in the media world, mostly in magazines and newspapers. Okay. So um, it's a, obviously a good city to work in at, for a journalist because there's always uh, something interesting going on publications-wise. Is that what you always wanted to be when you were a kid or did you have different aspirations as a child? Yeah, no, it it took me a while to um, work out that that would be an interesting life. I think it might have been a film like All the President's Men or something that said to me, you know, that looks like an interesting world. And then I got my first job at the Hackney Gazette as a reporter. and I was uh, covering Stoke Newington Police Station, which was a heavy crime area back in the 80s. And there was a lot going on. 
with protests and marches and various crimes. Uh, so it was an exciting place to have your first job in journalism because there was just so much going on and uh, new reporters were just thrown in at the deep end. So mm. it was really interesting world to um, start your career in. What was it called? Sorry, the what Gazette? The Hackney Gazette. Oh, the Hackney. I thought you said Hackney. Yeah. How did you actually get that job? Well, I'd been trying for a long time. I'd written off uh, loads of jobs and written off lots of letters all the, all the time I was at university, worked on the university newspaper, but came very close, but didn't actually get a job. So I did a journalism diploma when I left, which took a year at City University in London. And part of the course was you had to do two work placements. Um, the second one I did was at the Hackney Gazette. And while I was there for two weeks doing my uh, work experience, somebody left and I was in the right place at the right time. The editor offered me the job. So very nicely, let me go back to finish the course. And then I, I started in the summer. So having spent all that time applying for jobs, I actually got a job through literally being on the spot. <laughs> they say it's who you know, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> Quite often rather than what you know. I'm not suggesting you don't know anything. So how long were you at the Gazette? I was there a couple of years, and then um, I, I went off to work in magazines for a bit. What magazines? Uh, I did a lot of um, TV magazines, and then I became an editor of a magazine about cable TV when that was in its infancy. Then I freelanced for a while, and I was working at the Mail and the Mirror, uh, working at the Mirror on special projects, doing um, sort of special magazines celebrating, you know, uh, the anniversary of the war or a royal occasion or football event like the Euros. And one of the magazines we were supposed to be doing was a, a true crime magazine. And we worked on that for quite a long time. But in the end, it was decided not to do it. But that's how I got to do my first book, because one of the features that I was working on was about the Hammersmith nudes murders of the 1960s. And I'd done so much research on that and a few interviews that um it was suggested that I, I turn it into a book for Mirror Books instead. So that's um, that's how I wrote my first book. I do have that down, The Hunt for the 60s Ripper. I've got a few questions about that, which we'll come to. I just sure. wanted to ask you, as a freelance journalist, yeah, having never really done freelance work myself, I've always been full-time employed, and in this scenario with the podcast, do it on the side. Yeah, What's it like being a freelancer? I just see it as being, personally, I would think I would find it quite, anxiety inducing not knowing where the next sort of lead's going to come from i think i mean i did it i, I wouldn't have done it when i was in my 20s or 30s because we had two sons because i'm married we have two sons we had a lot of a mortgage to pay so by the time i was uh, decided to go freelance when i was made redundant my wife and i were slightly better off financially and it was a, a point in my life where i could take a bit of a risk and the other thing was this was around the 2002 2003 it was easier to get to make money uh, or to make a living in freelance journalism. I think it's got more and more difficult. I wouldn't recommend many people do it these days because I just think it's got more and more difficult as budgets have been cut. The internet has, has kind of sidelined print journalism. I think it's probably got more difficult, but it, it's good when it, when it works. It's great because it, it's so varied. You meet lots of people. You do. You eventually meet people that you that are able to like working at the Mirror was just something which I, I just fell into. So it can be a bit of an adventure, but yeah, if you don't want to be doing it if you're financially stretched and worried about where the next bit of work's coming from. Yeah. What's your opinion on, so 2002, that sort of pre-social media before yeah. the market, I imagine the market's pretty saturated now with 
aspiring journalists, online journalists. Yeah. People doing, you know, vlogging and blogging and all the ogging. Yeah. What's your actual opinion on social media? Do you think it's a friend of journalism or do you think it's stuff like clickbait, which is just and fake news? Do you think it's a positive or a negative as far as journalism is concerned? Uh, I suppose there's two sides to that. I, I think a lot of journalists would say a lot of online work is chasing clicks, which often means lowest common denominator type stories that are just run to um, cause sensation and get people clicking. But there's another side of it in which journal- journalists can use social media quite in many interesting ways. I mean, it's a great way to make contacts. It's a, it's a great way to approach experts if, if you want to get opinions about things. Uh, it's a great way to talk to readers. You know, so there, there are, it's, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, I think it can affect quality. But, you know, there are people and organizations doing high-quality work as well. So it's not all clickbait. I think there are lots of interesting ways in which you can use it. And it's a great way to actually meet people in a way. So, yeah, it can work both ways. It's good for networking, I imagine. Yeah, very important part of the job. Absolutely, absolutely. So you mentioned your first book. This was The Hunt for the 60s Ripper, which was released in 2017, my research yeah. tells me. How long were you actually working on this case then? You mentioned that you looked into it quite a lot of detail. Um, I worked on it for about a year um, because it was you know, like I say, it was meant to originally be uh, a, a big magazine feature for the first edition of the True Crime magazine. So I'd been gathering interviews. And what was quite nice about that was because I didn't have a deadline, I could just throw out lots of requests for stuff and or interviews and talks hmm. uh, with, with former policemen and various other experts. And I, I wasn't worried about whether they'd get back to me in time or whether it was worth pursuing because it was such a long lead in time. So that allowed me to, for instance, approach a geographic profiler in Texas and have a long negotiation with him about um, trying to get him, you know, to sort of give me some of his expertise for the book. And so it was good in a way because it was quite relaxed. I didn't actually have initially a deadline. So um, it gave me lots of scope to chase up a lot of leads. How do you go about chasing up said leads? Because I- I obviously have far narrower time constraints than you. My episodes come out weekly. And if you've got a bit of an open schedule, you can wait to hear back from people. How do you find the contacts that you want to speak to? So say, for example, you read the newspaper article on the report and you see that the lead investigator was you know, DCI whoever. And you think, right, he'd be good to, to speak to, to interview for some information on the book and history of the case. How would you go about organizing that meet? There's usually um, a period of negotiation and talk, getting to know each other and, and explaining what you're up, what you're doing. Quite often with, with former police officers, that they want to make sure that you're not, um, you haven't got some kind of axe to grind or you're, you know, you're a serious writer or podcaster um, and that you've given it a lot of thought and, you know, that, that, that it's worth their while speaking to you. So it takes a bit of talking. And I mean, you know, not all interviews come off. Sometimes people back off. Um, sometimes they're not interested. But by and large, I think, you know, if you're doing something worthwhile with, with the, the story, by and large, most people are quite helpful. Academics who are experts in, in various areas of forensic psychology, former police officers, by and large, people will generally be quite helpful. 
But as I say, there's usually a bit of a song and dance initially to sort of make sure while people check you out and assure themselves that you're actually a bona fide uh, journalist or writer. Have you ever had an interview where you've come away from it and thought it's either not gone to plan or you think, actually, there's not much I can use from that? Do they ever, so for example, you speak to someone and they might think, oh, you know, I've been used for a book, I'll get quoted, and you don't use it. <laughs> Is it a case of you have to go back and say, sorry, I don't, I'm not using any of that? I don't usually have to explain it if I don't use it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it happens. It goes, again, that can go both ways. Sometimes you'll, you'll speak to somebody on spec and, and come up with a, a wealth of interesting stuff that you hadn't expected. Other times you might have high hopes of an interview and it's like, you know, pulling teeth. It's really hard work and you're not really getting much. So, you know, it can go both ways. So for anyone that isn't aware, this this 60s Ripper case is the Hammersmith Nudes you mentioned is another name for it, as well as Jack the Stripper. Yeah. Now, one of my episodes covered Harold Jones. This was season, uh, episode four of season five. I believe he is one of the potential suspects. Am I right in think? Have I got that right? Harold Jones. Yes. So he killed two girls in Abertillery in 1921. This is in, I don't know what area, but it's in Wales somewhere, yeah. Abertillery. And then basically he was thought to be a suspect in this case, but then he died in the early 70s. Yeah. So it couldn't really be proven. What's your thoughts, without, without spoiling the book, if anyone wants to purchase it, on who the actual Jack the Stripper suspect was? <sighs> I think he's a fairly good suspect. When I wrote the book, I didn't point to him too strongly, I, uh, although I mentioned him. It was only subsequently when the BBC did a documentary based, sort of inspired by the book, which, which I appeared on, that um, more information came out, which which suggested he even more so that he he was a strong possibility. The irony of the, the investigation was that at the time in the 60s, it was the biggest investigation Scotland Yard had ever mounted. One of the peculiarities of it is that the case was largely forgotten, really. From the 70s onwards, everyone had largely forgotten the case. But at the time, it was a, an absolutely huge case with hundreds of officers involved in scouring West London. They did things like they, they mounted um, traffic monitoring where they had officers literally just standing by the road taking license plate numbers they did things like door-to-door calling checking old garages and this was hundreds of officers doing this today you would never have that many officers involved in a police investigation it's much more focused i think that's the big difference between then and now but the irony was that while the police were doing all this there was somebody living smack bang close to where uh, a couple of the the victims lived near um, hammersmith and the police were completely unaware that he was there. He never cropped up in the investigation. He doesn't appear in the police report that was done to summarize the whole case. He completely slipped under the radar. And the reason, I mean, the way he got away with it and, or the way he managed to slip under the radar was he changed his name. He'd, he'd gone to jail for something like 20 years. He was imprisoned when he was 15 uh, and he pled guilty so that he would avoid being tried as an adult, which could have meant the death penalty if he'd been found guilty. So his um, barrister said to him, or his uh, lawyer said to him, plead guilty and then the trial will go go forward more quickly in case it goes against you. And that's what happened. And he went to jail for 20 years. Now, what was interesting was while he was in prison, 
every time he was examined by a psychiatrist or a psychologist, they reported that he shouldn't be released because he had no remorse about what he'd done and he said so. But in the end, the prison governor ended up just so happened to be an enlightened type of governor and he decided that um, Harold Jones should be released into the armed forces during the Second World War where he could perhaps perform uh, his duty and show that he's a fine, upstanding person. And as he says in one of the prison reports, he could prove himself the, the father of happy children in the future. I mean, why on earth he thought a double child rapist and murderer would be transformed by doing his duties is beyond uh, imagination to most of us. But that's what happened. And, and then when he came out, he served in the armed forces, came out of the army, changed his name and went to live in London, where, of course, nobody knew him. And he was living under a false name or a name that was very similar to his own, but wasn't his, his original name. So the police, even if they'd known he was there, they had no idea of his past record. Um, and I think, obviously, today we know he was living two streets away from a couple of the victims. And he drank in the Shepherd's Bush Hotel, which was where another of the victims drank as, as well as on, on some nights that he was there. So he would have been a spectacularly strong um, suspect. He also worked on the industrial estate where the bodies were kept. So, you know, everything was pointing to him. But unfortunately, at the time, the police just overlooked him and he slipped through their net. Do you ever believe that people who get sent to prison for things such as that? Do you think they can ever be rehabilitated? I'm not, I mean, I, I wouldn't pass myself off as a um, criminologist or, or certainly forensic psychologist, um, but from what I've read, I, I'm not sure that serial offenders, certainly serial killers, can ever be reformed. But if you think back to the 1940s, that I don't think anyone thought in terms of serial killers. It wasn't a, a term that had actually been defined. So the thinking at that time would have been <laughs> slightly different. I think today we can see that uh, people that have these patterns of behavior, remorseless killers of, of strangers, are a sort of breed apart. And it's not a good idea to assume that they've they've reformed their character and they've been cured or they've they've seen the light or they're better. They, they tend to actually, they're quite good at pretending that they've taken on board uh, any treatment. And then as soon as they get out and start reoffending. So yeah, I'm not sure with serial killers that they're ever over it. Yeah. A strange example of that was Colin Pitchfork. Yeah. Who was released, I believe was it the back end of last year or early this year. And he killed two young girls, I think it was in the 80s, I believe. And he served however many years, 20, 30 years, gets released from prison. Yeah. And within a couple of weeks, he gets recalled because of his behavior, was breaching his bail terms, parole terms, whatever it's called. And you just think, why was he even released in the first place? Did it shock you when you heard the news of that? Well, it did. What, uh, what was quite shocking was reading the the prison reports and the psychiatrist reports and they were consistently saying he shouldn't be released and warning against it even at the time they could see that he he was you know he hadn't he wasn't uh regret he didn't regret anything he'd done and this was a, a 15 year old who'd murdered and raped two children why on earth they would have just thought the passage of time would have have helped him to grow out of that it's difficult to imagine the interesting thing is that this occurred to me again when I was doing the Murder by the Sea book, because there's a similar case there in, in a sense, 
murderer, Mal- Malcolm Green, exactly the same kind of thing. He, he committed a murder in the 70s, a really vicious, nasty murder in the Cardiff docks. He was released 20 odd years later and murdered again, another horrific murder. So again, people are left scratching their head thinking, well, how on earth did they come to the conclusion that it would be a good idea to release him? It is. It's bizarre how often it occurs. I recently did a case on on Glyn Dix, who he murdered a lady and then went to prison for 20 years or something, was released, and then within three years he'd remarried and then he brutally murdered his wife. Yeah. And, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but the thing that frustrates me, and I'm no legal expert, I've spoke to a judge on here who tried to explain things to me, I don't understand life sentences being called life because then you i know technically you can keep them in and we've got whole life tariffs which is the next step up but to give someone a life sentence for example and then they might get a minimum term of 15 years yeah doesn't quite sit right with me well it's uh, not a good term for a 15 year sentence is it to call it life but mm. you know i think it's it's a huge responsibility to be on a parole board and, and have to do all these assessments. I think the one thing that the public would expect is that they just veer on the side of caution. Yeah. What's your thoughts on capital punishment? Well, I'm not a fan of it because of, of obviously the, there are lots of innocent people who get, who get uh, executed. The legal process isn't perfect. So it's, it's, it's an appalling situation where innocent people get executed and I would never advocate it. Having said that, I think it's a completely human reaction when you hear about some people being executed is that you have no regrets or remorse or sadness for them. I mean, yeah. I think about people like Ted Bundy. I personally wouldn't uh, vote for him to be executed, but obviously I didn't lose any sleep over the fact that he was. Yeah, it's, it's a very divisive thing. I think it's it's good that it's disappeared for the same reason as you. It prevents anyone who may be innocent from being executed because the problem is of course when you kill someone sometimes back in the day even if they later found out it was someone else you know the case has been tried we've killed someone for it we're not going to admit we got it wrong yeah that's right they could go on and and kill more people which is just absolutely awful but you did mention there the new book that's uh, come out it came out in july uh, early july i think it was the 7th that it came out is that right the 7th of july yes this is murder by the sea and this is a companion book to the CBS reality true crime documentary series of the same name. How long has that been going now on TV? A couple of years, right? Two, three years? Uh, about three years. I think it started in 2018. And they've done, it must be around 100 episodes now. And I think there's an, at least another two series coming along. So, yeah, it's, it's really struck a chord. And it's, it's got quite a following now. What's your involvement with the show? Is it something you've been a part of? I, yes, I've been in, I've been invited onto it to speak about some of the cases. So I'm one of the people who, who goes on and comments. Um, and what's interesting about the program is that it has a, a great cross section of people, some of whom are directly associated with the cases. So it could be investigating officers, it could be uh, a barrister, forensic psychologist, criminologists, and occasionally writers like myself are asked on to comment on some of the cases. So you get some really interesting insights into how these crimes happen, how the people are caught, how it's affected the, the victims, families, 
it's a, it's a really well-rounded um, series. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Is it uh, Jeffrey Wansall that presents it? He did the first few series, and now it's Nell Darby who's presenting okay. it. Ah, uh, right. Okay, I must have watched it. I watched one the other day. It must have been an old one then. Yeah. So we've got the book here, and basically this is 10 cases from the TV series. Yeah. And it's it's put into a book. It's well put together. You've got a little map of where everyone is in the UK, and some of these cases are absolutely brutal. I was speaking to Robin before we recorded about one particular case, the case of Robert Mockery, and this was a family annihilation case, which is absolutely brutal. And it's one of those where there's... On the outside, everything seems fine, like you said to me. On the inside, perhaps not so much. And he was the kind of guy that rather than speaking up for himself and seeking help with his depression, his mental health, he bottled it all in. And unfortunately, that meant that his entire family, his wife and kids, and then himself, didn't see another day after that, which is is just awful. It says on here that a lot of the content in this book is from interviews that were done for the TV show, but they didn't necessarily make the final cut. How much footage did you have to work with that didn't actually make the cut in the TV show? Um, it's difficult to quanti- quantify that. I, well, I talked to um, my co-author, David Howard, who is also the director of the series. And David, as well as directing it, interviews everybody on it. And he, we would discuss it and he would say to me, oh, in that program, we weren't able to get in what this guy was saying about this incident or this person had a really interesting tale to tell, but we couldn't get all of it in. So he was able to direct me in in places to bits which they weren't able to use. And some of it was really interesting. And because we haven't got the time constraint, obviously, that the programs have, I was able to put in everything that they had to cut out. I think most of the chapters have got, certainly have got bits in that uh, never made the program. Uh, And the way we did it was they, they gave me transcripts of the full interview so i was able to go through the whole thing and um do the chapters that way it's it's really cool because we often go to the coast for holidays staycations if you like and i sometimes find myself thinking i wonder you know on the east coast we normally go to filey near scarborough and i kind of think it's such a peaceful little fishing town historical fishing town you think i wonder if anything (laughs) morbid happened once upon a time which this is kind of this is why I enjoyed this so much. But do you think there's something haunting about the seaside? Because it's a juxtaposition, really, isn't it, of this idyllic location, and then you've got these brutal murders that occur there. Yes, I, I feel slightly guilty about... <laughs> Ruining <laughs> everyone's holiday. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the seaside is um, a great place, um, as we know, for going on holiday, going, getting away for the weekend, retiring... You know, it's got so much going for it. But it, the, the interesting thing about these cases is that it, it gives you a glimpse behind some of the stories uh, away from the the sunshine and the fresh air and the sea breeze. Each town's kind of different as well. So you've got big places like Blackpool where there are lots of, like the middle of the season, there's lots of people coming into, flooding into town, mm-hmm. seasonal workers, holiday makers. And it's a kind of perfect setting for somebody like Stephen Akimurile, who is the first chapter in the book, who had actually committed a couple of murders and on the Isle of Man and wanted to get away because he felt the police might be closing in on him there. And so he went to Blackpool and it was the perfect place to disappear. 
worked he worked in a bar he you know made new friends he was and unfortunately eventually he targeted new victims who were the elderly basically and then you've got smaller places much more family orientated where you have family breakdowns like the Robert Mochrie case and then there's a couple of horrible husbands in in the book as well so it's all sort of uh, a peek behind the dark side of these towns as well as away from the the idyllic aspect of them how did the 10 cases that made the book get chosen i said to david that it would be good to do a, just a, a good mix of things so that we didn't end up covering similar cases a lot so um i felt like uh, we came up with a fairly good mix of things. There were one or two that I really wanted to put in there, such as Louisa May Merrifield, which I found particularly interesting, uh, and John Cooper, another particularly interesting case. There were one or two that he really wanted to, to go in, and then the rest of it was just trying to pick cases that were different but interesting in, in different ways as well. So, And then there were, there were plenty that we couldn't squeeze in, but we're, we're talking about perhaps doing a second book, um, which hopefully will come out next year. I was going to ask you that if there was going to be a follow-up, because if there's that many episodes, trying to squeeze that all into 10 chapters, you know, there's going to be ones that you think, oh, that would have been in, good in there. Yeah. Or It'll be well-received without question, because even if you haven't seen the TV series, it's just a great true crime book. The thing I like about books like this is that it's each chapter is a separate case from start to finish. Yeah. Just for my style, sometimes when I'm reading a book, I'm not the quickest reader by any means. And if I happen to go off the idea of reading for a month and try and come back to a book that's narrative based, you know, and I'm 100 pages in, I think, well, I either try to remember what happened or I start again. Neither of them is appealing to me. So I kind of like the idea of before bed, it's obviously before bed, get nightmares. Before bed, 20, 30, 40 pages worth of a story. And then that's it. Come back to it whenever you want and you can read a brand new story. It's like Stephen King will release a book of short stories, for example. Yes. Personal preference. It's good to pick up when you want to pick up, read a story. You can always come back to it and and refer to it. Is that easier than doing one such as the 60s Ripper case, where it's all about one particular case? Yeah, it probably is. Because I think to do a full-length book to one subject, you have to come up with quite a lot of new, fresh material that no one's really heard of before. I mean, that there are, sometimes books get published and they don't really have much new to say, but I think, by and large, you need to do a lot of research, interview people, go to the National Archives, look, look, go to the British Museum, go to the British Library. So you need to come up with a lot of interesting new stuff. Um, to do shorter versions is... I mean, having said that, I didn't actually go to the... the um, National Archive and look up a lot of stuff on, on some of these cases as well. So there is a lot of fresh information in here. But I understand what you're saying. I mean, the chapters are all, you know, five or 6,000 words long, I think. Maybe 8,000 is the longest. And it's it's the sort of thing you can read in an afternoon each chapter Yeah. On, while you're sitting on your, your beach deck chair. Absolutely, yeah. It's the best place to read it. <laughs> it's, it's on the beach looking at the sea. Yes. Not before you go to bed at night. I wouldn't recommend that. Yeah, you might get sleepless nights like me. It's not the best. You know when you're going on the show and you're providing expert analysis, just coming back away from the book for a second? Yeah. 
Does David ring you and say, right, Robin, I want to discuss this case. Does he sort of say, I want you to come in and prepare what you know about it? Or do you get an idea of what you're going to be asked? Is the guidance on what they'd like you to discuss? It's quite easy going in a way. Um, so what they do is they'll, um, production assistant will get in touch and say, we'd like you to talk about, say, five cases in a month's time. And that gives you time to uh, go through the case notes if you, if you can get access to them uh, and do a lot of research. And then when you turn up on the day, you usually film, say, two or three in one day and then two or three the next day. David will sit there and start the questioning off with, with a few things to get the ball rolling. Uh, he'll have some specific questions to ask about the cases because he will know what the strong points of the program are. So they might have some very good interviews with sort of former police officers involved in it. And he'll want people like myself to sort of discuss aspects that are being talked about by the police so he'll steer it a little bit but at the same time he'll he'll also leave it open so he'll say you know are there any things you want to discuss is there anything you've found out that you want to introduce and then you've got you've got the freedom to sort of introduce new aspects of the case as well so it's it's very he's very much wants to get the best out of everyone that goes on on the program it'd be an interesting experience i looked on your website and it mentioned that you're currently working on a book about corruption and it's sort of echoing the real life wrongdoing as portrayed in the bbc drama line of duty that's right yeah so how's that come about what's the the message you're trying to portray with this well it's been an interesting book to do um it's aimed at people who like line of duty and it's basically i mean i think people that do like line of duty will know that um the book does reflect on uh, some real cases i mean it mentions you know the daniel morgan case Stephen Lawrence. There are, there are many aspects. There are parts of the series which they may not they may not know about. So, for instance, Jed Mercurio, the writer and creator, was initially partly inspired by the uh, Jean Charles de Menezes shooting by the police to to write the first episode in which an innocent man is is accidentally killed in a police shooting. The series is great entertainment. It's got all the thrills and spills, and it, it's become really talked about and viewed by millions of people but as well as being terrific entertainment it, it is also asking serious questions about corruption how it happens and how how difficult it is to fight yeah i can imagine especially in a scenario such as in the police force if there's corruption going on it's going to be especially if you're lower level on the rung it's going to be difficult to get your say across really I mean, yeah, it's difficult when you're young. I mean, one of the repeated sort of patterns that happens is that when young officers join, if if they have the misfortune to end up in a unit that is corrupt, they get um, indoctrinated into the sort of ways of corruption quite quickly. Um, some of them will flinch and, and try to get out of it. Others will see that this is a sort of pattern of behavior that most of the superiors are indulging in. And so they'll go along with it. So it's quite an insidious aspect of the job. Uh, and it's very difficult to root out. And it's something which, I mean, you know, it's difficult for the police, but I think it, it kind of takes root quite a lot when the police take their eye off the ball about this and they get a bit complacent about it because it's permanently there and it has always been there. There, there was no Dixon of Doc Green era in, in real policing. There have always been networks of corrupt individuals in the police. And you know, if anything, as far as I can see, it's much worse today. It's far more difficult to get out. And in a way, that's what the TV series is saying. That'd be interesting. Look forward to that. If you could go back 
to your younger self, let's say 20 year old you, or you've just started your career. What advice, if you could go back in time, back to the future style, what advice would you give your younger self? Uh, I think that's an interesting one. I would say don't be put off by any knockbacks or this is probably quite common advice, but I mean, it's still, (laughs) I still think it's valid. I think if you get any knockbacks or setbacks at all, don't let it put you off. Just keep plugging away. You know, if you keep doing a good job and you and you keep making good connections, you'll have a good career and you'll be able to do interesting things. It's very easy when you're young to uh, feel down in the mouth if someone senior to you is sort of giving you a knock or not giving you a role that you want. Just keep going, basically. Good advice. Any aspiring journalists or authors out there? Don't let knockbacks ruin your career. I think it's a shame that so many people potentially would and think one person has said this, oh my God, I better change everything about how I approach things versus, you know, the hundred people that may say you're doing a great job. Depends what the critique is, how it's put across. Is it constructive who it's from, for example, but good advice. Don't let knockbacks ruin what you want to do with your career. So we've talked about your career now. Let's go on to something a bit more relaxed. What do you do in your spare time, Robin? Uh, I do a lot of reading, funnily enough, and uh, so I like reading um, fiction. I do tend to read a lot of non-fiction, which I find really interesting. I'm interested in how other people have put their books together and who they've interviewed and how they've the kind of stories that they've uncovered. I mean, every every writer or journalist wants to have the good fortune to uncover a really interesting story, and so it's always interesting to f- see how other people have other people have uncovered something amazing and apart from that i play the piano at home and um, that's how i relax i suppose cool do you ever find yourself reading a true crime book or a non-fiction book and think oh that'd be a good person to speak to i'll make a note of that person's name all the time yeah i mean um yeah i mean there are lots of fantastic uh, books and authors out there doing some amazing work. I'm always in awe of some journalists who, you know, take tremendous risks to get the stories that they've done. I don't know if I'd have the guts to do to do that. Those books are also very interesting. There are lots of authors coming up with new ways of writing about true crime as well. And that's that's quite interesting. Moving away from the obsession with nasty killers and actually writing books that are slightly more sociological and talking about society at the time, such as the Jack the Ripper era. The Five is a very good book about victims, which gives a completely different insight into that period and uh, what happened. Uh, And so there's lots of books like that being written, which um, are really absolutely fascinating. If we did Desert Island, not discs, but Desert Island books, and you could only take three books with you to a Desert Island, what books do you think you'd pick? Uh, I think fiction-wise, I'd take The Friends of Eddie Coyle, uh, which I think is a it's a really slim book, but it's fantastically written, absolutely engrossing. Let me think. I'm, I'm sitting here looking at all my books. Let <laughs> <laughs> uh, me think. I take. Um, I might take the Stranger Beside Me by Anne Rule. That's an amazing true crime book. Have you read that? I've not read that. No, Stranger Beside Me. Yes, that's the story of how. And Rule, as a, I think as a student, maybe as a young student journalist, spent her evenings working on a Samaritan's hotline on the, on the campus. 
and the person wow. that she was doing the job with and was basically spending all night alone in an office answering these calls with was Ted Bundy. Wow. Okay. Interesting. And then another really good true crime book that I'd probably take is Michelle McNamara's I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Okay. What's that about? Uh, that's the book about the um, the Golden State Killer mm-hmm. who was, now she died sadly before he was actually unmasked. But um, one of the things she said in the book was that the police, and she's covered the case in great depth for many, many years. I mean, she wrote about other things as well, but she this was her one, the one thing which she never saw resolved. But uh, she said in the book that the police should actually consider using DNA to try and find out who, who this awful serial killer and serial rapist was. And around the time that the book came out, the police were doing that, and they did actually finally work out who this guy was. He'd been unknown for 40-odd years, and he committed a whole series of appalling crimes throughout California. And they finally, I think he's in his 70s now, it turned out to be an ex-cop Right. living right in the middle of uh, where all the crimes were committed. I think the guy's name was Joe D'Angelo, and he's just pled. I think he pled guilty, actually. I think I know what you mean. I, I think I've seen pictures of him. Because wasn't, wasn't his DNA familial? So someone found yes. DNA that was someone in his family, and then they narrowed it down. And exactly right. Found, yeah. Uh, which is interesting because it brings it brings back the whole thing of geographic profiling. I mean, he was living right in the middle of where a lot of the crimes were committed so um, geographic profiling is an absolutely fascinating tool that the police use a lot these days and they didn't have it in the 60s at the time of the hammersmith nude murders but of course kim rosmo who's the geographic profiler that i consult for the book pinpointed the street where the killer may have lived and it happened to be where harold jones lived so if, if the police had had that, they may have been able to narrow down their um, investigation at the time and look more closely at the people living in those few streets. And of course, once they'd seen that two of the victims actually lived there as well, that would have heightened their interest to an extreme degree. So there's an our father have come. Absolutely, yeah. So there's a final question I want to ask you. Yeah. Do you think it's more terrifying to have one serial killer killing... The case I'm researching as at the time of recording is the, the death of sex workers. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's more terrifying that one serial killer kills numerous, in this scenario, sex workers, or do you think it's, in fact, more more terrifying than that, for better use of a rubbish term, that, say, five sex workers were killed by five different men within a short space of time? Uh, I think the uh, one serial killer killing uh, five women is 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 rarer whereas men killing their partners is extremely unfortunately extremely common mm-hmm. so i think it's probably more scary to have one person doing it because they're killing strangers simply because they've got a, a fixation on doing that which is a rather rare and extreme type of human behavior and I don't think any of us can really understand it all that clearly, how that happens, why they think in this way. Uh, so that is kind of more scary, really. It's amazing how it's so frightening, but we all find it so fascinating. Yeah, I think it's I think it's human nature. I mean, we, we, we ask questions, don't we? We want to know who does that? How does that happen? Have I met anyone like that? How could I avoid that happening? How did they catch that person? Those people are extremely difficult to catch, and the police often struggle to catch them. So. 
yeah, why wouldn't we be interested in that? It's just human nature. It certainly is. Well, just to reiterate before we close out then, Robin, Murder by the Sea. This is out now to purchase. I will put a link in the description of this episode. That's released by Mardle Books, I believe. Mardle yep. Books are the, are the publisher on there. Um, where can people find out more about yourself? I've got a blog um, under my name, uh, which is Robin Jirossi. And um, I welcome anyone getting in touch with me via Twitter. I'm also on Twitter. So um, by all means, get in touch. Anyone who wants to discuss anything or have any suggestions, um, we'd love to hear from you. Cool. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on. Any final words before we close out? We do love to be beside the seaside, so take the book with you. Don't let it put you off. (laughs) You could have sung that to me. You could have sung that. (laughs) Thanks for having me. No worries. It's a great companion for the seaside, Murder by the Sea. Link in description. Please give it a read. And I will be back next week with another true crime story. Until next time, cheerio.